Yeah, so if you can put this two onto your... So I clip it? Yeah. To the ear? My earring's going to get in the way? Ah, a earring. I can take them out. I can take them out. That's all right. Okay, so earrings out, and yeah. I'm using like these clips yeah, to clip yeah, onto yes. my ear yes. where my earrings were. It doesn't hurt. I thought I thought it might hurt. Like no, it might no, pinch. No, no, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's we're pretty non-invasive. Okay, so it's, I hope it's okay. It's nice and snug. All right, all good. This is Think Digital Futures. I'm Shane Anderson, and I am stepping aside for a bit to let Ellen Liebeter, hi, kick off the show and explain. Invasive brain technologies, people call it a human-machine interface. Brain-computer interfaces. So I'm in the lab of C.T. Lin. Hello, yeah, everyone. A professor in the School of Software at the University of Technology, Sydney. I'm also joined by Tim Chen, a lecturer in the School of Software. He's the one that has me plugged up to their brain-computer interface, or BCI for short. And of course you want to make sure that this sensor kind of connects to your hair. That's actually why uh, CT design like this. So this is a spring-loaded one. So this can kind of penetrate your hair without like, going to your scalp. <laughs> right? The device I'm wearing is essentially a set of headphones with an extra strap going from my forehead to the back of my head. It takes mere moments to put on, thanks to the spring-loaded dry sensor you heard Tim mention there. If you can imagine a few dozen springy metal toothpicks on a surface about the size of a coin, that's currently what's pressing into my forehead at the moment, tracking my concentration levels. So this demo is so attention demo. So if you really focus on something, the ocean will be flat. But if you start being distracted, and you will see a lot of wave, like I'm talking to you, and you'll see there the wave coming up. On the screen in front of me, I watched an animated boat on the ocean. If my attention shifts, the boat gets rocked by waves. When I focus, the water is calm. But why would you want to keep track of how focused you are? Well, this sort of device actually has a number of applications. It could be used to keep track of how focused kids are in class, or it's something you could put on while driving that keeps track of your fatigue levels. And this all uses your brainwaves? Yep. And how do you explain this to, say, your grandmother? Because it's a pretty confusing concept, right? Uh, okay. Yeah, brain computer interface actually found his... Uh, uh, words, it means that, that we try to communicate with the machine directly from the brain. Actually, uh, there are a lot of, in our daily life, there are a lot of uh, situation we need to communicate with the machine. So people call it a human-machine interface. For example, the keyboard is a way that we try to convey our thinking, our idea into a computer. So let's let's take the example of a keyboard. So we type things into the keyboard for the computer to understand what we're doing. So what your, what a brain-computer interface is, we're using our brain to just directly tell the computer what to do. Yes, exactly. Uh, especially for some people, uh, he cannot move. In that case, we have a brain-computer interface technology that can help such kind of person uh, who can just look at the screen, for example, and then from the screen, uh, the brainwave detected when the, sub- when the people look at the screen, just that the computer can understand the need and to make actions for, for him or for her. 
So what CT is describing is the medical use of BCI technology. That's helping people who have medical conditions like quadriplegia to control a wheelchair or type on a computer using their brainwaves. They've also helped people with migraines be able to predict when their next migraine is. What they do is they take the EEG data from hundreds of patients. EEG detects the electrical activity in your brain. To do this, you normally wear a hat that goes over your head and has hundreds of electrodes attached to it. The one CT and Tim showed me had 256 channels. And for each channel, it has to be attached to your head one by one. It takes about an hour to get it on. That sounds a lot more complicated than the one you were trying out. Yeah, it was. The headband thing I had on was only showing two channels, so you can imagine the difference in data you get from 256 channels compared to two. Here's Tim again. Yeah, so then this will connect to your computer, then you got 256 dimension signals, and you do your machine learning algorithm to find the useful features. And once you have all that brain data, it's just a matter of identifying which brain signals are related to the symptom or problem you want to fix. In this example, it's the brain signals related to migraines. So we had to identify the signature, which is highly correlated with the, the target uh, symptom that we want to observe. Once they've worked out which signals cause the migraine, they can start to use algorithms to predict when the patient is going to experience their next migraine. So based on feature, again, we can use a machine learning technique and the model can help us to precisely predict the predictive level of the, of the onset of migraine. CT says this device becomes a bit like measuring blood pressure. You wear it for 10 to 15 minutes every morning and it can predict three days ahead whether or not you're going to have a migraine. I actually get pretty frequent migraines and it often hits me when I'm either really busy at work or really far from home. So it would be incredibly useful to know a couple of days in advance if I'm going to actually get one. I could make sure that I've organized to have the day off work or that I've got my medication handy. That's really cool. Right. And there are BCIs on the market already to treat things like Parkinson's disease, but they're a little bit more invasive. The device you'll hear about shortly is placed directly on the brain, and because of this, it raises a whole new set of challenges. So uh, you have this surgery and you wake up and pretty much immediately you feel like somebody else? Yep, I did. I, I wasn't crying, but I just, I just felt so totally different. I, I didn't feel the same person that I'd felt when I went to sleep. It's like standing back and observing yourself and thinking, who the hell is that person? This is Julie Leifelt. I was a formerly a special needs teacher from Queensland uh, that I was, I don't know, do you, do you say diagnosed with a disease or do you think leave that out? Probably the main thing is just being able to pronounce your last name. So that's the important part. <laughs> there you go. So Leifelt. Ten years ago, Julie was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease at the age of 45. Parkinson's is a neurological condition that's caused by a lack of dopamine in the brain. When your brain stops producing dopamine, the motor system can't control movement and coordination. So people with the disease end up with tremors and muscle stiffness. And it's really, really painful. Well, I live my life and about five or six hours of that 24-hour period is full-on shaking. My, my whole body tremors, like, significantly, and it starts from my glutea, my bottom, like, my bottom muscle, goes right down my leg and then up, and, and it just shakes, just shakes, shakes, shakes. 
and every bone in my body shakes with it. And not only that, but inside, like a lot of these big muscles are inside you. So my muscles in my stomach shake. So it's just mind-numbingly painful at times. Over the years, Julie took different types of medication to manage her condition. But medication for Parkinson's only lasts so long. Eventually, your body gets used to it. Then, her doctor suggested deep brain stimulation, or DBS, as a way to treat Parkinson's. It's not a cure, but it can help ease some of the symptoms. It is a very huge operation. So, And this sounds insignificant, but they totally shaved my hair, you know. And I've always been proud of my hair as a woman, you are. So that was quite big. That was the main, the, the major thing I thought at the beginning. Julie had what's known as thalamic stimulation, where electrodes are implanted into the part of the brain known as the thalamus. They, they open your head up and they put two probes in a place called the subthalamus in my brain. Then there's this kind of, quite a lot of leads. If you see an x-ray, you'll see that there's a significant amount of leads and stuff and hardware in my brain. The leads are then tunnelled under the skin, where they connect to a battery pack. Julie's battery pack was put near her stomach. Sometimes it's also put at the base of the neck. In theory, the battery stimulates the electrodes on the brain and reduces some of the symptoms of Parkinson's. It's a merging of human and machine. But here's the really wild part. This surgery is partially done under anaesthetic, but the surgeons wake you up halfway through to test that they've got the leads in the right place. Like you're awake because there's no pain receptors in your brain. Right, that's freaky. But, yeah, it is freaky. Yeah. You know, but you know, the brain is an amazing thing because. So here you go. I swore a lot when I woke up. It's kind of like when you're at a party and you're half drunk and you know these things are coming out of your mouth, but you know that you're going to regret that. So that's what it's like. But they have to to see whether the tremor has stopped or not. After the surgery, Julie spent some time in intensive care. It's here she woke up and realised something wasn't quite right. Well, I have three teenagers, and my idea of hell on earth was listening to Led Zeppelin. When I woke up after surgery, I knew that something had really changed because all I wanted to do was put headphones on and listen to ACDC cranked up. But I noticed a real change in my personality, like I observed it, and it scared me. But it wasn't just her musical taste that had changed. Other parts of her personality changed as well. I just barrel along and barrel through things now, whereas I was very timid, socially correct. I tried to make sure everybody was happy sort of person before. What it is is the filters are off. I, I constantly have this voice saying, is that a good thing to say? Have a think about it now, Julie. Don't say it straight away. Don't blurt it out. You know, like I would, I would never swear before, but... I, you know, I have to be very, I have to think about not swearing now. And this personality change wasn't always for the better. Although Julie admits that while all this surgery was happening, she was facing a lot of trouble in her personal life. It was at a time in my life too where I was changing, you know, things were changing. And who knows, maybe I would have changed in that direction anyway. Her marriage was ending, she's trying to manage a complex illness, she wasn't sleeping. Julie ended up attempting suicide. There's no way of saying for sure that her DBS caused her to attempt suicide, but afterwards, a doctor turned down the electrodes which were stimulating her brain, and Julie said it made a huge difference. There was half as much electrical stimulation going, going off in my brain, which meant that it just seemed to calm me down. 
and I could sleep. And uh, do you see a difference in your behaviour at all? After he turned it off? Yeah. Yep. What changed? Well, you know, when you sleep, you're able to think a bit more clearly. But also, you know, when you think clearly, then you're able to put into place strategies to help you when you're down. DBS does work in some people. You can watch YouTube videos where people who shake uncontrollably suddenly stop as soon as their DBS gets turned on. This tech just didn't work on Julie, unfortunately. The reason why this is such a contentious area is that we just don't know enough about the brain. There's a great quote from Jeff Lichtman here, who's a professor at Harvard University and, you guessed it, researches the brain. Jeff likes to ask his students the following question. If everything you need to know about the brain is a mile long, or in Australia, about one and a half kilometres, how far have we walked along this mile? The answer is three inches. Or eight centimetres. So we know about eight centimetres out of 1.5 kilometres about our brain. That's a pretty big gap in knowledge. And it's a bit worrying that we know so little about the brain and we're about to throw open this technology to everyone. So what impact could this have on our lives? That's coming up after the break. Would you take medical advice from a celebrity chef? What is multi-drug resistance? What does your gut say about your mental health? Where did the anti-vaccination movement come from? Think Health, the show on 2SER where we look at the biggest health concerns of today, decrypt all that medical jargon, and talk to the people who are trying to solve these problems. Think Health is available on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Health and subscribe. So we've touched on two different types of BCI applications, the medical and the recreational. The recreational is where this technology is headed. It's what companies like Facebook and Neuralink are currently working towards. It's all about efficiency. Facebook is currently looking into tech that means we can type with our brain. You heard earlier how there's tech for people who are paralysed, enabling them to type with their brain. Well, the end game is for all of us to just throw our keyboards out. And Neuralink? Neuralink is a little bit more ambitious. I'm going to butcher the science here with a very simple explanation, but basically the idea of Neuralink, and Neuralink is Elon Musk's recent venture, the idea is to allow us to communicate with machines and ultimately each other using just our brains. There's a great article on all this by a guy called Tim Urban on a website called Wait But Why, where he talks to Elon Musk about how all this works. And the premise is that all this language stuff is totally Stone Age. My brain has to think about what I'm going to tell you. It then has to come out of my vocal cords. My voice has to travel through the air and into your ears, which then gets decoded in your brain. And then you try and make sense of what I'm saying before constructing a response and repeating, repeating, repeating for a conversation. Conversing. It's just so inefficient. 
The end game for Neuralink is for my brain to think something and your brain to just understand it. It is ambitious, and there's a number of hurdles that Neuralink has to jump through, including the fact that we really don't quite understand how the brain works. And also, it's going to be really tough to create a device that is small enough and fast enough to process all those brain waves. Not to mention all the ethical issues that come with having a device implanted on your brain. Like, how much access do we give these companies to our brains? So uh, my name's Aaron Klein. I'm a uh, neurologist and a philosopher by training. I work within a a brain-computer interface uh, center based out of Seattle, Washington. Aaron would like us to start asking some of these questions. He says our track record of allowing technology into our lives is not great. I think we gave away a lot of our privacy for the convenience of uh, these technologies. Yeah, when we moved to email and social networking sites, we were like, free service, yes. But the cost of all this has been our personal data. And now we are standing on that cliff face again, staring at this new technology that has the potential to exploit our minds at the cost of convenience. And we need to ask ourselves, is that what we want? Um, And I think we have an opportunity here, although that opportunity is sort of closing fast to have a conversation about whether or not we want to just give that information away and trade it for convenience or for products or for other things. And maybe we do, I don't know, but I think uh, we didn't really have much of that conversation in the mid to late 90s, and it, it might be useful to have that conversation now before this technology really, really takes off. Aaron cites the example of the P300 brainwave, which is one thing we should be worried about. So the P300 is a specific brain signal that fires off whenever we see something that's familiar to us. So, for example, if you were walking in a park and you walk past a crowd of people, all of a sudden you see your friend and your P300 goes, hey, you know this person, and it alerts you to something you should be paying attention to, i.e. saying hello to your friend. But this type of technology could also be used to work out if you were involved in a crime. It's potentially the case that you could use that technology to determine some things that an individual might be thinking. So if they've um, been at a crime scene before, um, maybe they perpetrated a crime, and you show them a picture of that crime scene, it's possible that that will generate a P300, or what's called guilty knowledge, and and that might be uh, incriminating evidence. Could a court compel you to wear one of these devices and test your response to different pictures of a crime scene? Or could a court compel one of these BCI companies to hand over all the brain data about you in order to, I don't know, sift through and find out if you have memories of committing that crime? And if your P300 is firing for anything familiar, well, it could be used to find out your bank password, whether you cheated on a partner, any number of things you might want to keep hidden. Although we're not at that point just yet. You know, you're only able to do that uh, in a very structured experimental set up. So it's not something that you could just strap on someone's head and be able to extract. You'd have to have someone studied for a period of time so that you know exactly what their P300 looks like. So that's Uh, like your science fiction possibility. Yeah, yeah. I think think we probably ought to be a lot more modest about what is possible in the near term. But but you can, I think you can imagine that there might be ways to extract information about whether you have positive feelings toward one product versus another product. 
And even even that sort of information could be uh, really useful to a company as as they're selling products or selling advertising. That's all big picture kind of scary stuff. But on a more personal level, we need to consider how these devices affect how we see ourselves. You know, when you have these devices in you, it's not always you're not always sure sort of when they're acting or when you're acting. So we did some interviews with people who had deep brain stimulators for um, depression or obsessive compulsive disorder. And one of the things we found was that a number of them had these instances where they they weren't sure whether or not what they were feeling or what they were thinking was coming from them, as it were, or coming from the device. It comes down to that idea of agency. It could be a placebo, but a lot of people Erin has spoken to say that they question where they end and the device begins. If I have show less less patience for, for someone who I'm having a conversation with, is that because of the device or is that because of me? Or if I if I don't get emotional in an inst, in a circumstance in which uh, I would think that I should get emotional, maybe a funeral, you know, is that because the device is, is working to keep me happy, or is it because I don't have the same feelings for this person as I thought I did? It's what Dr. Fred Gilbert calls self estrangement. They don't recognize themselves after the surgery. They they will say uh, somehow that they miss themselves, and that can happen despite the fact that they are symptom-free. Fred is an ARC DECRA fellow currently visiting the University of Tasmania. So they, they would say, yeah, I don't recognize myself. We have even cases, I would say historical cases, back in 2006. Uh, from, that's from a study, a seminal study done in France, where some patient declare, I feel like an electric doll, or I am Robocop. Fred is also talking to people about implantable brain tech to find out how it influences their lives. Like one patient he spoke to, who became heavily reliant on her device to control seizures. The device was always alerting them ahead when the seizure was coming and she had to take medication. But the device was so effective for her that every time the device was alerting, she was taking the pill. But even once she wanted to do something, she was always consulting the device. For instance, she wanted to go out to get in her garden. First, look at the device. Any single time, going to the shower, look at the device. So it became a sort of compulsion. Yes, to some extent, an addiction. But for the rest of us, especially moving into recreational use, we need to be aware of the limits of our brain. So say, for example, you have a device implanted on your brain that increases your memory function. Which is obviously really cool. There'd be no more fights with your partner about who said they'd make dinner tonight. You'd remember the conversation, right? Yeah, and also I wouldn't forget all the information I need every time I walk into an exam. But we didn't evolve this way. At the same time, we realized that brain or uh, biological organ with limits, meaning that perhaps the brain are not designed to remember everything. And there's nothing wrong with us trying to advance ourselves as a human race in this way, but we do need to consider what the possible consequences are of having all this extra information. Yeah, we could really open up a Pandora's box here. We don't know how the brain works, and we don't know how these companies could use this tech. At the same time, there's a lot of development happening that could change the lives of many people with medical conditions. But as Julie's experience shows, medical or recreational, we need to decide whether our brain data is something we want to hand over. For now, Julie has to decide whether to keep a bunch of useless wires in her head or take it out. A lot of people lose their speech ability with deep brain stimulation. It's just one of those things. But I managed to be 
relatively articulate. I'm just afraid that if they go in again, I might lose one of the things that I treasure, you know, being able to talk to people. It's a minefield. This technology has the potential to change millions of lives if we get it right. Perhaps better brains than ours could solve this. Hey, maybe this is something AI could solve. Or even a quantum computer. Nothing like outsourcing humanness to machines. listening to Think Digital Futures. Thanks to Ellen Leebeater for producing this episode and also thanks to Miles Herbert for lending a hand. This show is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SCR and broadcast right across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information and to check out past episodes, head to 2SCR.com slash think hyphen digital hyphen futures. We're also a podcast, so download us, rate and review us on your favourite podcast app. My name is Shane Anderson. Thanks for listening.